Well, welcome to Spurbs Herbs episode 56. Today we are going to be talking about a very interesting herb and spice, a delicious spice called sumac, uh, very Middle Eastern, uh, but we're going to find out not just Middle Eastern. And the actual name for this herb, the, the botanical name for this is Rus coriaria. So we're going to get into all of that on today's episode. So without further ado, let's get into things. So today we'll be looking at another world herb, sumac. This is a delicious Middle Eastern and African spice. But does it have medicinal properties? Spoiler alert, it does have medicinal properties. And we're going to explore them with our usual thoroughness. Join us as we look at this spice herb medicine, as well as usual, exploring something a little different. In this case, the very important book of changes. So something uh, a little bit different for us. It's going to be another interesting and, dare I say, terrific episode. Before we get into today's episode, I did want to, you guys are my, my audience. I love you guys. Thank you very much for listening. But I wanted to give you guys a heads up. I'm starting a webinar series and wanted to let my podcast listeners know about it before anyone else. It's going to be starting in September of 2023 and continuing for quite a while. It is called Integrated Nutrition in Chinese Medicine and will cover uh, biomedical and Chinese concepts of nutrition and explore the complementary and alternative concepts that are part of the modern supplement industry. The series will be one live class per month covering a category of nutrition and will include some basic biochemistry, nutrition, and supplements available on the market. In other words, it's going to be the perfect combination of biochemical nutrition, supplements, Chinese medicine, and real-world use cases. Why would you use these, these particular supplements or not? We're going to talk about that in this, in this series. If you're a practitioner of any stripe or just interested in nutrition, this is the series for you. And you can sign up for the first class or the whole series at www.integrativemedicinecouncil.org. That's integrativemedicinecouncil.org. As you can tell, integrative is kind of woven through a lot of what I do here. So I will only be teaching each class live one time. After that, it will only be available as a recording, so you can be part of it and you can be part of it live. Uh, so don't miss this opportunity to learn about a topic all our patients ask about and get a firm understanding of the basics of integrative nutrition. And I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm going to put it out there. I'm a traditionalist when it comes to nutrition. I'm not going to give you way far out stuff on nutrition. You know, take mega doses of this or mega doses of that, and you're going to be able to cure everything that ever ails you. I'm not that way at all. It's science. We're going to be talking about the science of this stuff. So it's going to be really interesting. So, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So, without further ado, let's talk about today's something a little different. So, here is, a, a, you know, we're, we're going to talk about the Yijing or the Book of Changes. And we're going to get into it. But I kind of wanted to tell you why I, I decided on that this, this episode um, because I had a major life decision. And when I've had major life decisions, I have often consulted the Yijing. The Yijing is a book of, it's, it's considered an oracle and 
I, I don't want to say an oracle is thought of as predicting the future. That isn't how it was ever explained to me, but it was more like you ask it a question and it gives you something to ponder about and it may give you some direction. So for example, when I was going to medical school, when I started, when I had gotten into Australia medical school, I was very concerned about being able to come back and practice medicine. If I did an overseas school, of course, if you're going to go overseas, Australia is definitely one of the better places to go to medical school overseas. Uh, and But I was worried about it. I was really worried about it. Surprisingly enough, it didn't matter because I ended up not doing my residency because I had a spinal cord tumor in medical school. But um, it was very interesting. I cast the Yijing, and it was really interesting what it said to me. And usually it's nowhere near this clear, but I said, you know, I, I don't remember the exact question. I know I have it written down somewhere, but it was something like, um, is, um, would going to medical school in Australia be you know, appropriate or a, a good thing or whatever it was, something along those lines, probably much better form than that. And it came back and it actually said, again, amazingly, it said, crossing the great water furthers. It was like as clear as bell that that is what I should be doing. So I'm, I'm on the cusp of another sort of major life decision, maybe um, changing directions a little bit. And so I, I tossed the aging recently, and that's why the aging was on top of my mind as I was going into this, in, into this uh, Spurbs Herbs episode. And I said, you know, this is a really important book. It is a foundational text in Chinese um thought it's not necessarily it's not a chinese medical book but it is used in chinese medicine which we're going to talk about in just a minute so i thought uh, you know when i when i've taught uh chinese history in the past this of course is is one of the three big books that we talk about really really foundational really important so we're going to get into it a little bit and and talk about it so um again it's called yi jing and it's often translated as the book of changes now um jing is a little bit more than just a book and is often translated as a classic you know, it's a, it's a book that has withstood the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the winds of time and, and all that. So it's, it's, it's an important book. It's not just a book. It's a classic. So sometimes you might see the classic of changes, but that's usually not how it's translated. It's usually translated as book of changes, but it really is more than just a book. So then changes in this case is Yi, is the, is the Chinese. And, and when you look at the character for Yi, it's actually a picture of a chameleon it changes color easily, and that makes sense, doesn't it? Changes, and in, in so that's how it's translated, and that's a lot of the early pictograms would be along those lines. They're from the natural world or what have you. Currently, the modern word for lizard is shi yi, so it still kind of contains that yi aspect in it. So original material was written on bone fragments by shamans, and there's a question mark around this because this is very old. The original materials predate writing and so we're not entirely sure but we've gotten scraps and we've gotten things that we think are the beginnings of the book of changes uh a, a, another one uh that is thought to be true but is there's a question mark is turtle shells are heated in fires and a pattern of cracks are used for divination of course these aren't used today but originally that may have been the case a again imprecise date of origination Legendary ruler Fushi listened to the eight winds and thus inspired, he set down the eight basic signs and he saw the eight trigrams on the back of a turtle. So a very common depiction of this historically is eight trigrams on a turtle. Now, what is a trigram? We're going to talk about that in just a minute. 
Uh, Westerners first encountered this text through missionaries who went to China, and it was considered quite, uh, you know, uh, non-Christian at that point. Uh, and uh, very interesting. There's a lot of interesting history with that, but we're not going to get into that right now. Yijing is based on primitive and prehistoric culture and includes aspects of necromancy, uh, which is defined as the practice of communicating with the dead, especially in order to predict the future. Geomancy, the art of placing or arranging buildings or other sites auspiciously. If you're familiar with feng shui at all, which is geomancy is the placement of things, um, they use the, the trigrams, the eight trigrams are primary in that. And so very much kind of carries over, it goes back and forth. You know, like you can say feng shui is based on this. And you can also say that, you know, that, that um, you know, that feng shui influences this as well. Uh, divination from configurations seen in a handful of earth thrown on the ground or by interpreting lines or textures on the ground, part of geomancy. That's another definition of geomancy. Uh, also, aspects of numerology, the branch of knowledge that deals with the occult significance of numbers. And occult here is defined as supernatural, mystical, or magical beliefs, practices, or phenomena. And then finally, just word magic. You know, just the words themselves have magical properties. Now, do I believe in the magic of any of this stuff? No. My, my teacher was very practical about this stuff. And he basically said, this is just, you know, casting Yijing, you know, asking a question and casting Yijing, which, again, we're going to talk about it briefly, uh, is more about directing your thoughts and, and having questions come to you that you might not have other, otherwise pondered or maybe not in a formalized way. So his, his thing, you know, and my, my teacher was Taoist, but um, he was Christian as well. So there was no conflict in his mind at all between these two things. And, and so um, he kind of thought of it as more of a book of wisdom. And um, there's sort of an element of the universe and the chances of what you will pull out of the book and what have you. So I, you know, not there's mystical aspects, but not like, you know, anything too much in his interpretation. And I, I kind of tend to be that way as well as a sort of a grounded sort of person. So the basic building blocks of, of the Book of Changes, the Yi Jing. And, and, and what we have here is uh, the, the most basic is yin and yang. And of course, as if you're at all familiar with Chinese medicine, you're pretty familiar, you should be very familiar with yin and yang. And yin and yang are, are the basic opposites. And so we have uh, some, some things that are attributed to yin and yang. They're constantly transforming into one another. Uh, there's a regeneration and a degeneration. So they, they, they uh, wax and wane uh, with each other. Uh, and, and in the case of the book, it changes. Yin is symbolized by a broken line. Yang is symbolized by a solid line. That's all there is. You have a broken line or a solid line. And then that's yin and yang. And that's the basis of this. Now, on, on my slide, and not all of you can see my slide here, I have a pictograph on the on a picture on the right. And, and on the top of this is uh, a, a, an empty circle. And this represents the, the absolute or the Wu Ji. And so very, you know, there's nothingness, basically. And then below is another circle that has, um, you know, uh, it's kind of, it seems like it's split in half with... Um, and then in three inner circles within this, and um, um, one half of that is white, and the other half is black, and they alternate. 
a um, little bit hard to explain, but that's what it is. And this is this represents the the Taiji. You're familiar with the Taiji. The, that's the, that's translated as the Great Ultimate. And usually we think of that as the Yin Yang symbol. You know, it's like some people say fishtails or or what have you. That's technically called the Taiji symbol, not the Yin Yang symbol, um, or the Great Ultimate symbol. And this is another version of that. So not quite as the same, but but in the same ballpark, and probably an older version of, of that Taiji symbol. Uh, and it and, and it's represents the harboring, the two or yin and yang, shown as two semicircles that mirror each other. Each semicircle is made of black yin and white yang lines that enclose each other, depict yin containing true yang and yang containing true yin. The empty circle within these lines corresponds to the empty circle on top, alluding to the notion that yin and yang are the function or operation, yang, of emptiness, which in turn is their substance or core. So I forgot to mention there's so there's there's an outer semicircle, left side and this is is white, the right side is black. There's an inner semicircle, uh, one just below that, and that is black on the left and white on the right. And then another semicircle with white on the left and black on the right, so they're alternating. And then in the very middle, there's an empty circle, and that's that's what this was just talking about. And then below this, we have uh, uh, five characters that are distributed. So there's there's basically four of them in a circle and one in the center with lines can um, that are connecting between these. And these are, they translate this as the five agents. And, and I say they, I, this is from an old lecture of mine, so I don't know the source material, which I don't like not knowing, um, but that's uh, where it is. And they call them the five agents. We've called them in the past uh, the five phases, and the common name for that is the five elements. I, I personally am, um, wuxing is what we're talking about. I, I personally like five phases. We just had a, a, a podcast on that, so if you want to go back and listen to that. And um, so this is a further stage in the progressive differentiation from oneness to multiplicity. The signs that connect the agents to each other show the sequence in which they are generated, namely wood, fire, soil. Oh, sorry, I went forward when I didn't mean to do that, and I apologize for that, and I lost my note because of that. Um, and I cannot go back. All right, well, we're going to continue. So we have the five, and then there's two s empty circles below, um, which, again, um, kind of talks about other aspects of it, but we were long in time anyways. It's time to move on. So let's move on to the next slide. Um, here we're talking about the eight trigrams, and these are, so you have the, those, those lines. You have a solid line or a broken line, and you take either of those, and you make them in combinations of three lines. So you can have three solid lines, three broken lines, or any combination uh, thereof you can come up with eight trigrams. And these symbolize complex combinations of yin and yang. And are associated with various aspects and elements of the phenomenal world resonate due to their same proportions or state of yin and yang. And what we have here as a picture is we have the bagua, is what it's called, um, which technically means eight trigrams. And, uh, but in this case, they're, they're made in a uh, octagon and in the middle of this octagon is that Taiji symbol, the sort of the modern Taiji symbol that we know of, which the sort of the, the two fishtails chasing the black and the white, chasing each other with a circle of the opposite color in the middle of it. That's sort of the, the yin-yang symbol that most people are aware of. But again, that's the Taiji symbol, the great ultimate symbol. That's in the center. And then the eight trigrams are around that. 
And then we have another diagram here that goes from the bottom up. And what we have is a circle enclosing everything. And this is the Taiji, again, the grand ultimate. Uh, and then it goes to yin and yang, which are on the bottom. Uh, so there's, there's two boxes, a black box and a white box. And in, in there is actually the symbols for yin and yang. And then it goes into four boxes uh, that, you know, there's a black, a white, black, and a white box. And these are called the Sishyang, or the four manifestations. And these are the four possible combinations of two yin-yang lines. So if you have two lines, so all the combinations of two lines, you can have two solids, two broken, uh, broken above and solid below, solid above and broken below. Those are the only ways two yin-yangs can come together. And those are called the Sishyang, or the four manifestations. And then on the final, we have eight boxes, uh, alternating black and white. And the Sishyang go to the Bagua, which are the eight trigrams. So those are the, if you take three yin-yang lines, they have eight different combinations. So that's the basis of the Book of Changes. And now we're going to take those trigrams, and we're taking it to the next level, which is we're going to combine those trigrams. So whole trigrams now. Uh, and these are now called hexagrams. So trigrams are three lines. Um, if we combine two trigrams, we get six lines, and that's a hexagram. And so there are 64 possible combinations of the eight trigrams. It encompasses more diversity of phenomena. And then the next line here is changing lines within a hexagram uh, are, are unstable and change from yin to yang or yang to yin. So when you toss them, when you actually go ahead and... and um, toss a, uh, we're gonna, you know, you do coins, you can do this a lot, we're going to talk about different ways you toss it. But what you can have is you can have a solid line or a broken line when you toss something, but you can also have a solid line that's old and about to change to yin, and you can have a yin line that's old and about to change to yang. So those are called changing lines. So if you take these changing lines within this structure, you have 64, but then you can have times 64 with all the different variations of the changing lines. So with these changing lines, the system is considered adequate to describe all phenomena humans need to understand. So 64 times 64 is a lot of phenomena. What's that? That's about 36, 33,650 different phenomena. Uh, so there you go. And they can represent, and here's the interesting part for us, they can represent body parts and be used in medical divinations. That's an interesting thing. You do divination medicine. Yeah, I don't know many people who do that. I, do, I have known one or two. All right, so let's talk about casting the Yijing. So that's what's called casting. So you can set the stage. You want a quiet state of mind, quiet location. A little meditation doesn't hurt. And then you formulate the question. You want it simple questions and not convoluted direct and focused, so don't add a whole bunch of different parts to it. Do not ask a, a yes or no question. Um, it's more like, I think what I said, what are the aspects of me going to medical school in Australia, or what are the, the you know, something along those lines, you know. Only ask the question once. And there's many tools for that are used for casting. Um, probably the most common one is three coins, and that's what I use, and in that case, uh, the, the, the tails are, are worth two points, the heads are worth three points, and so you can get a, a, a result by tossing three of them of six, seven, eight, or nine. And the, and the uh, odd numbers 
are are um, I always get this wrong. One's yin, one's yang, and then whatever's at the end. So the six is changing, and the nine is changing. That's how that works, and that's the three coins. And again, if you want to know more about it, you can look it up on the web pretty easily. You can use dice. I think that's a much more modern way to do it. Um, an, an older way and a way that I am not familiar with, though I've always wanted to learn, and I don't know why I haven't put in the energy to do it, is using yarrow stocks or other wooden sticks. And then finally, these days, there are computer programs and online resources. If you put the Yijing into the computer, you'll, you can hit a button, and it'll do a hexagram for you. To me, that takes out a little bit of the meditation and a little bit more of the, the um, you in this process, but that certainly is a possibility. And certainly if you want to play around with it, that's a great way to do it. So after you cast, you obtain a hexagram, and then you interpret that hexagram. Yijing speaks in symbolic language. Look at the hexagram as a whole, and that gives you a generalized answer to the question. Read the image and the judgment in the text and consider its implications. And then you look at the individual trigrams, some conditions and factors underlying the hexagram. And then you look at the changing lines. Lack of changing lines indicates very specific answer to the question. More changing lines indicate changeable and fluid circumstances. And as we mentioned, there are medical applications of the Yijing. It can be consulted for helping with patient care, including diagnosis, prognosis, point selection, understanding transformations of yin and yang, and to help solve difficult cases. So do I use the, uh, the Yijing? Like I said, I don't use the Yijing often, only a big question for myself. So I don't use it, of course, with patient care. I mean, I do know people who do, and they may not rely on it entirely, but they might add a point or two. Uh, into it, but it's fairly rare that it's used in medical, at least in the uh, in the U.S. and the Western world, in third, you know, in the, the uh, developed countries. So, but a very important foundational, one of the oldest uh, oldest books still in existence in China, super important foundational for Yin and Yang and Chinese Chinese Taoism uh, and Chinese thinking, very important, uh, and, and Confucianists will refer to it as well. Um, so, very very important book in Chinese history. And so with that introduction to a very old and revered Chinese book with primarily Taoist underpinnings, let's continue with our herb today. And our herb today is sumac. That's what we're talking about. Here we're calling it S-U-M-A-C. It's also spelled S-U-M-A-C-H. I've also seen it spelled with a K. I've seen it smelled, spelled with a Q. There's a lot of different spellings of this. It is the species Rus coriaria, and its family is uh, Anacardiaceae. While the root bark and berries of a similar plant, Rus glabra L, are used in North American native medicine, traditionally the berries of our herb are used as a spice in medicine. The leaves and bark of several sumac species can be used as a dye and a tanning agent. It has a lot of tannic acid, which we're going to talk about uh, in it, and that, that it gives it a lot of its medicinal purposes, but also, as we can see, some of its economic purposes in the way of tanning. If you're not familiar with tanning, that's how you, you work with leather and stuff like that. So, The other names for this, so one of the, the hindrances that I had is we're really talking about Rus curiaria as the spice, but there's a lot of similar species that are used around the world. And so sometimes it's a little hard 
There were a lot of names for this, but the only ones I could really track to Rus Karaya were the Hindi words Tatrak or Tatri, and then um, sort of the English sort of approach, which is Tanner's Sumac. So again, referring to its ability to tan. So let's talk briefly about the family. It comes from the Anacardiaceae family, commonly known as the cashew or sumac family of flowering plants. There are about 83 genera, of which Rus is the largest, with over 250 species. Uh, and and uh, Rus is the largest with over 250 species, species, though there are about 860 species in Anacardiaceae. So a little bit uh, uh, less than a third and a little bit more than a quarter of the species of Ana Anacardiaceae are of the Rus genera. They bear fruits that are droops, and droops are stone fruit with a fleshy outer part surrounding a single pit or stone. So for example, a peach or an apricot would be considered a droop as well. It includes plants such as mango, cashew, pistachio, and mastic trees. And here's a, an interesting one. Some plants produce urochiol, ur, ur, an irritant including poison ivy, poison oak, and poison sumac, which is a different species than our herbs today. There's a lot of plants that are called sumac, but it's that word before sumac that is really important. So this case, poison sumac, though there's some question mark. I actually, no, it's <coughs> poison sumac. Some people said it was in Rus, but I think now it's not considered in the Rus genera but I do believe it's in another genera of the Anacardiaceae family. So, so all those plants, poison ivy, poison oak, poison sumac, are all in this, in this family, uh, though, though not in our genera of Rus. So back to sumac. So once the berries are fully ripe, they are harvested, dried, and ground. The processed sumac uh, on a, it takes on a dark red burgundy color and the texture of ground nuts. It has a similar smell and taste to lemon, but is not as sour. Sumac is widely used as an acidulant, so it, it adds acidity in Arabic and Lebanese cooking. And similar to salt, it brings out the natural flavors of the foods it is cooked with. The flavor of sumac is quite surprising as the deep red spice is reminiscent of fresh lemon juice. The sweet but sour taste is followed by an astringent, powerful punch. Interesting. The history of this of this herb, uh, the name sumac comes from the Aramaic word su, uh, sumac, S-U-M-M-A-Q. Again, I don't know how to pronounce Arabic, so I'm just going to say sumac, uh, which means dark red. So again, that dark red nature of this. As far back as 2,000 years ago, sumac was noted for its helpful properties, namely as a diuretic, so that makes you urinate, and anti-flatulent uh, by Roman Emperor Nero's physician, Pedanius Dioscorides, or Dioscorides. Uh, again, pronunciation, not one of my top things, but keep trying. Uh, before lemons made their way into Europe, the Romans used sumac to add a tanginess to dishes. According to Serious Eats, if you're not familiar with Serious Eats, they're one of my favorite go-tos for, for food and, and recipe information. So, uh, and they popped up when I said when I put in sumac into a, into a search. Uh, uh, they say because various species of sumac are native to more than one continent, 
Its exact origins are difficult to establish. Sources claim origins in Sicily, Turkey, and Iran, for example, and that's without acknowledging the separate story of North American species. The fruit was used in both ancient and medieval Europe and around the Mediterranean, not only as a spice, but as a dye and for medicinal purposes. Indigenous peoples in North America also used sumac to treat ailments as well as to make a refreshing sumac lemonade. Now, I, I want to make it clear, this is a different species. The species here seem really close. Like, they seem to be overlap a lot in their effects, more so than a lot of other sort of things. But the North American is a different, it's called staghorn sumac, and it's, it's a different type of sumac, but it, it, the, it seems very similar to how sumac uh, that we're talking about, the Rus coriaria, uh, is used as well. So it seems very similar. So um, North America is used to treat elements as well as to make a refreshing sumac lemonade. In English, it's known as the lemonade berry, notes author and agroecologist Gary Navin of some species of the plant. He explains that sumac plants have been growing in North America for thousands of years, and although there are different species from those found in the Mediterranean, their profiles are similar. Today, however, most commercially sold sumac has been imported from talk about some of the traditional uses for this. So sumac is a, uh, a natural traditional medication found, found in many world dietary cultures. It is seasoning and flavoring used agent as a main pole in the municipal traditional remedies all over the globe. About 2,000 years ago, the, the De, De Materia Medica of Medical Matters a voluminous Greek physician book by the Pedanius, by Pedanius Dioscorides, who lived from 40 to 90 CE, had between its folds plentiful healthy merits of sumac, mainly described as an anti-flatulent, stomach tonic, and a diuretic. Rus coriaria has been used commonly in the remedy of ulcer, anal piles, if you're not familiar with it, that means hemorrhoids, anal piles, hepatic disease, so liver disease, diarrhea, animal bites, and pain management. Also for treatment of pharynx or, or, or throat cold inflammations and seizing hemorrhage like uh, hematemesis, that's um, vomiting up of blood, hemoptysis, which is, is uh, spitting up of blood, hemorrhoids, and dysentery, which is a, a bad uh, particular type of infection of the, of the intestines. It had been prescribed for ocular diseases like conjunctivitis, leucorrhea, and ophthalmia. So those are all uh, basic uh, diseases of the eyes. According to Madura, sumac is a drying and tonifying herb. Its drying nature shows up primarily in its strong diuretic action, while its tonifying effects are apparent once you taste the astringency of the plant, especially the leaf. So really what we're talking about here is the herb is the berries, but we're going to see leaf and bark kind of coming in a little bit here. As a diuretic, sumac leaf moves deep, stagnant water out of the body, reducing edema and water retention. It's helpful for swollen tissues and varicose veins too. When taken as a tea or tincture, the astringent tannins in the leaves can counteract diarrhea, profuse mucus discharge, and other damp flowing tissue states. These could be occurring in the intestines as diarrhea with slimy loose stools or the lungs as a cough with copious 
post-nasal drip, and phlegm in the lungs. Sumac leaf tincture is a good addition to your first aid kit. And these are quotes. Topical applications of the leaf can fight fungal skin infections, especially when they have been acquired in a moist location, like a communal shower at the beach or pool. They're also helpful for oral health, tightening up spongy gums and shrinking canker sores. But don't count the berry out yet. As a sour draining herb, and like many berries, sumac berry infusions or tinctures can help with both the outward expressions of diabetes, including fluid stagnation and edema, as well as the underlying causes, which are insulin resistance. So that is from an article I found online uh, by Madura. Here are some more modern uses. This was actually an interesting um, sort of excerpt, I think, uh, from, uh, from a scientific paper. Uh, some more modern uses of this. So conventional med medicinal practice use Rus coriaria for cholesterol reduction and in gynecology as an abortifacient. So in other words, it causes abortions. Others also report its use in improving wound healing and as an antimicrobial. Rus coriaria bark powder is an effective teeth cleaning agent while its infusion is useful in viral eye infections treatment while the water bruised is applied on the forehead for the first aid treatment of epistaxis. Epistaxis is a bloody nose. While the water bruised is applied, I don't know exactly what that means. Powdered fruits are sparsed on boiled eggs and eaten for the treatment of diarrhea. That still sounds kind of tasty. A fruits decoction is set and given orally 150 cc thrice daily, so three times a day, for the treatment of hepatic diseases, urinary system disorders, and diarrhea till improvement occurs. So, I, you know, a decoction of this, you know, say in 150 cc um, given orally, that doesn't help me because I don't know what the, the actual dosage is of the, of the herb is in that situation. Um, and that specifically goes into 150 cc. Dosage on this was not the easiest thing to find. I, we're going to talk about dosage, but it's, it's not the fact we're going to talk about right now. Um, but it wasn't hard. Like I said, here, specific information about dosing of this herb is difficult to find. It's maybe because it is used most often as a spice, so flavor to taste sort of thing. Healthline, which is a pretty decent scientific, it's not like deeply scientific, it's, it's like science for consumers, um, but a pretty good website. Um, so that's Healthline, uh, which tends to be quite conservative with herbs, says up to three grams per day has been clinically demonstrated to be safe. Holmes, which is uh, the author of the book, um, I have it right here, The Energetics of Western Herbs in Materia Medica, Integrating Western and Chinese Herbal Therapeutics. So it's kind of that combination of Chinese and Western. Um, and, and he has some of his own ideas as we go through, but he says dosage in a decoction is 6 to 12 grams for both the root and the berry. So, and he, he ascribes different functions to both of those, those parts. So let's talk about Chinese medical actions. It, it's interesting. So when we start looking at how Chinese medicine may view sumac, things get interesting. There is a Chinese herb, Rubeza, which is translated as Chinese sumac nutgall. Actually, it's translated as Chinese sumac fruit, but it is the description of it, the sort of the English description of it is Chinese sumac nutgall. 
Uh, another Chinese term for this is yan fuzi. Uh, and, and, but there's an issue here. It has this word nutgall in there. And it's one word, N-U-T-G-A-L-L. And honestly, I did not know what a nutgall was. I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with this herb. I mean, I studied it, but I haven't really used it. Um, so interesting. Dharmananda, if you're familiar with Dharmananda, Savudi Dharmananda, he has written some fantastic articles on all kinds of stuff in Chinese medicine. He's just he's a brilliant person. Um, so he wrote an article, and he says, Chinese gall, also referred to as Chinese gall nuts or nut galls, is a plant excretion produced when irritants are released by the larvae of gall insects, such as those of the Cynipidae family, the gall, gall wasps. A similar material is found on Chinese sumac roof species, reduced by the activities of a type of aphid. These galls are called rubedze by Chinese herbalists. So this is an interesting thing. So again, often when you, you see this, the species that we're talking about is not Rus coriaria, which is our herb today. It's Rus chinensis, which basically means Chinese Rus. Um, so it's a little bit different, but then it's not really that plant. It's these nut galls that will happen on this, or those, or the the gall nuts, whatever way your Chinese gall. Um, so the plant secretes the liquid gall, comprised mainly of tannins that hardens to become the nut. This article is really interesting, focuses on tannins and their medicinal properties. So that's the Dharmananda sort of thing. So basically, Wubeza is not exactly sumac, though it does come from the same, or at least a Chinese species of the plant. And like I said, my feeling, my sense of this is all the different sumac species pretty similar in their functions because when you list all those things, they sound very similar to what, what each other say. So I think ballpark of how Chinese would view this to a certain extent. So with this in mind, the gallnut still has a very sour and astringent taste as does sumac. In other words, there may be some overlap in their functions. And the functions of rubeza are it clears toxins, moistens the lungs, clears heat, expels phlegm, and promotes secretion of saliva and stops sweating. Uh, Yin Yang House, which is a, is a, a website that, that often puts up Chinese medical stuff. I find a lot of Western herbs um, that are described in Chinese terms on Yin Yang House, which is not always the easiest thing to find. So take it with a, a grain of salt, but it, at least it points us in a little bit of a direction. And so Yin Yang House says, Wubeza is, the, is in the stabilize and bind category of herbs. It is thought to enter the kidney, large intestine, lung channels, and exhibits cold Han, salty Xi'an, and sour Swan taste temperature properties. And has the following functions. Contains leakage of lung qi, binds the intestines, stops diarrhea, restrains leakage, and absorbs moisture, reduces swelling, swellings and relieves fire toxicity. So some of these we totally get. I mean, if you looked at the ancient things, diarrhea was one of those things that was mentioned. So it sounds like it's in the same ballpark, though maybe not, some of these are not quite as specific as, as they might be otherwise. So, Okay, uh, to add even more confusion, that book that I just read, The, the Energetics of Western Herbs and Materia Medica in the Materia Medica Integrating Western Oriental Herbal Medicine Traditions by Holmes does include an entry on sumac root bark with a note about the berry. So first off, the, the problem with this entry is it discusses 
discusses Rus glabra, which is not our Rus coriaria. The Rus glabra is that staghorn sumac that is North American species. So this is basically North American sumac as opposed to um, Middle Eastern or, or whatever you want to say about Rus coriaris. It's not the same species, but again, close. Uh, in fact, um, one of the other articles, and, and this really kind of really put that other article down in my estimation, says this species is poisonous uh, and says it's actually poison sumac. That is not the case. Um, Glabra is the North American species of sumac, as I mentioned, is also known as staghorn sumac. We're actually going to see the species name for the poison sumac. So I, I, that, that other article had some interesting information, but the, the fact that this, it got this so wrong is just really disappointing. Uh, so if we overlook this and believe this is one of the sumac family, the monograph says the berry is sour, astringent, dry, and cold in quality, and possesses antipyretic, so it reduces fever, astringent, and vulnerary actions. I, I love that Holmes uses sort of the old medical technical term. So vulnerary means healing of wounds. Uh, so it, it helps heal wounds. The decoction and tincture treat hot and weak conditions such as bladder, damp heat, and intestines, damp heat. So there you go. That's sort of a Chinese point of view here. jump over it. I did just jump over one. Sorry about that. Okay. So the contents of this herb are well-researched and it contains lots of tannins, antioxidants, and other phytochemicals such as flavonoids, terpenoids, and essential oils. We've talked a lot about these flavonoids, terpenoids, essential oils over the, over the, the course of our Spurg's herbs interactions. So according to Al Samri et al. and his team, the overall composition of the dried sumac fruit is mainly composed of moisture, 6 to 11.8%, essential oil content, 1%, protein, 2.3 to 2.6%, fiber, 14.6 to 22.15%, ash, 1.5 to 2.66%, and water-soluble extract of 63.8%, and fatty oil of 17.4%. The mineral composition of sumac fruits determined using inductively coupled plasma atomic emission spectrometer. So um, I've used some of the spectro spectrometers in the past. I don't have any idea what any of the other stuff means. It uh, showed that potassium, calcium, uh, magnesium, potassium, I'm sorry, um, uh, phosphorus, iron, sodium, zinc, manganese, copper, and aluminum are the predominant elements in it. It's worth mentioning that mineral contents were found to be affected by environmental factors and the geographic locations where sumac fruits were collected. That's pretty common, you know, depending on the, the conditions, the mineral content changes, basically. As for vitamin content, sumac fruit contained thiamine, riboflavin, pyridoxine, uh, cyanocobalamin, nicotinamide, biotin, and ascorbic acid. So that's basically vitamin C and several vitamin Bs in there as well. And then tannins comprise a large group of natural products. Oh, this is a different, this is um, a, a different quote. This is going back to that Dharmananda article uh, talking about tannins because there's a lot of tannins in here. So tannins comprise a large group of natural products widely distributed in the plant kingdom. They have great structural diversity but are usually divided in two basic groups, the hydro, uh, hydrolyzable and the condensed type. So hydrolyzable, so in other words, you can be lysed by water. 
hydrolyzable tannins include the commonly occurring gallic acid and the elagic acid, both of which are in sumac in, in relatively large numbers. The hydrolyzable tannins react with proteins to produce the typical tanning effect. Additionally, this is important for treatment of inflamed or ulcerated tissues. They also contribute most of the astringent quality that is noted when drinking tannin-containing beverages. So what are some tannin-containing beverages that you might know of? Tea has a lot of tannins in it. Although both types of tannin have been used to treat diseases in traditional medicine, the hydrolyzable tannins have long been considered official medicinal agents in Europe and North America. They have been included in many pharmacopoeias, in the older editions in particular, and are specifically referred to as tannic acid. These were recommended for treatment of inflammation and ulceration, including topical application for skin diseases and internal use for intestinal ulceration and diarrhea. And we see, we've talked about several traditional uses of this along those lines. All right, so that was the contents. Let's get into the science a little bit here. So many articles discuss the medical properties of sumac. From a scientific point of view, it appears these medicinal uses are not well established. There's that is not to say there is no evidence for many of them. There just isn't, quote-unquote, enough evidence. Al Samri and his team say these properties include antioxidant, antimicrobial, anti-diabetic, cardioprotective, so it helps the heart, anti-dyslipidemia, so in other words, it helps uh, high cholesterol and triglycerides, anti-nociceptive, so that basically means it's good for pain, neuroprotective, so it protects nerves, dental protection, and anti-cancer effects. So there are some anti-tumor effects to this that have been shown in some of the science. Healthline says sumac is probably best known as a culinary spice. People have used it in traditional herbal medicine practices for centuries. Scientific evidence on the effects of sumac in people is lacking. However, early research suggests it may have potential health benefits. And these include inflammation, including inflammatory illnesses such as heart disease and cancer, managing blood sugar, and relieving muscle pain. Another article, Biological Activities of Extracts from Sumac by Rain and Mazza, agrees with these activities of sumac, including being antimicrobial, antioxidant, and hypoglycemic, so that helps that lower sugar. Um, antioxidant is a big one uh, that is fairly consistent. In fact, there's a whole article about a, you know, the antioxidant activity of sumac. Um, I, I think that's still important, but antioxidants were really big about 20 years ago, and they've kind of come down in, in esteem. Um, and by that, I don't mean they're not useful, but it isn't, I, I don't think the antioxidant property is the important property. It's, you know, it's what it does with that antioxidant property. So some of the other things that it does. So I, I'd rather focus on the, the, being an antioxidant does not in and of itself say anything about medicinal properties. That's sort of my feeling about it. And so I don't usually get into too much about the antioxidants. It's nice that it's antioxidant. Um, that's, that has been shown to be a general health benefit, but it's not specific to anything in particular. So uh, Abdul Jalil says that sumac has many benefits, including being antimicrobial, antioxidant, hypoglycemic, which we just mentioned, hypolipidemic, again, that's helping the cholesterol and, and uh, triglycerides, 
It's also anti-mutagenic and DNA protective. So in other words, that helps prevent cancer. Anti-migratory, and in this case, that was in rats, uh, and it was talking about on vascular smooth muscle. So that was um, to help the cardioprotective. That helped uh, the heart, as does anti-ischemic, which means it prevents loss of oxygen to certain parts of the, air, uh, parts of the body, and neuroprotective, so it helps those nerves. Uh, these are a good list of, of benefits. However, many are based on animal studies. Specific extracts are in vitro studies. In vitro means in glass. It literally means in glass, so just lab uh, studies, which means strong evidence is not present. The hypoglycemic and hypolipidemic do appear to be based on human studies, but small ones. So, you know, not necessarily the strongest scientific evidence in the world but it still points in a good direction. So a lot of herbs do not have really strong scientific evidence because there's not a lot of money in showing that it does have uh, these positive effects. In fact, it takes away money often from drugs that may, may have those effects. So, you know, we always have to take this with a grain of salt. Um, the science isn't there. You know, these are not well-established, well-proven. That doesn't mean they're not very effective. It just means we haven't shown that they are. So I did look at drug-herb interactions for this herb. And, and in doing that, I, I usually use Google Scholar because it's straightforward and easy for me. I didn't find any results for any drug-herb interactions for sumac. And I usually will if there's issues with an herb. Uh, similarly, the American Herbal Products Association's Botanical Safety Handbook by Gardner and McGuffin uh, puts this herb in interaction class A, herbs for which no clinically relevant interactions are expected. I really like this book. It's the it's a really good book on the safety of herbs. Uh, you know, the problem is it was written in 2013. There's a lot more evidence since then, 10 years on. So it may not always be the most up-to-date at this point, but it's, it's I, I like the way they approach these things. They seem to kind of get it. Uh, and so when there is an issue, they'll, they'll call out a particular herb. When there isn't an issue, they'll call it out as well. And so it's, it's, it's a good book. So the fact that they give it uh, their highest, you know, the, they don't expect any interactions here. I, and again, it's a spice. It's used every day in, by a billion people in, on the face of the planet. So um, I'm, not, I'm not too worried about the safety aspects of the drug herb interaction aspects of this herb. That isn't to say there aren't some concerns. So the biggest concern cited in many articles about this herb is the potential confusion with its dangerous cousin, poison sumac. So we've mentioned that briefly. <coughs> Further research says this is toxico, toxicodendron vernix. That is the, the uh, uh, genera and species, not Roos glabra, as one website has stated, as I mentioned earlier, which was in the past considered part of the Roos genera, but is no longer part of the Roos genera, as it, you can see it's part of Toxicodendron uh, genera. And here's a quote from Madura. Poison sumac has white berries that droop down, smooth-edged leaves, and smooth bark. Fortunately, poison sumac is also a fairly rare plant, and it only grows in very marshy or watery soils. So look, if, you're, if, if you come across something that you think might be sumac, if it has red berries, and, and um, you know, as you can see in our picture that we started here, it doesn't droop down. It pretty much stands up for the most part. Um, then th it's probably not poison sumac. And don't touch poison sumac, and certainly don't ingest poison sumac. Not good, not good at all. 
So some other uh, concerns, Healthline states a few other potential concerns uh, because sumac is related to cashews and mango. People with allergies to those foods may want to steer clear of sumac to avoid any potential allergic reactions. That seems like fairly prudent advice because sumac may lower blood sugar. It's also not recommended if you're taking medications that lower blood sugar. So again, I, I wouldn't, you know, just being on a diabetic medicine, I don't think would prevent you from, from doing sumac. There are some diabetic, uh, some diabetic medications that lower blood sugar, like insulin does that, and, and um, the sulfonylureas, I think, do that. And those can cause sort of a hypoglycemic reaction. And that, th using a lot of sumac while you're on those kind of drugs, probably not the best idea in the world. But if you're using something like metformin, which is probably the most commonly used, at least for type 2 diabetes, that does not really lower blood sugar. It, just, it, it basically makes your, your cells more receptive to whatever insulin's around. And so in and of itself, it, it does not cause hypoglycemia. I don't think there would be any issue with sumac. So it, it can be a little specific with that and these concerns. And again, this is an expert opinion. There's no evidence to support it, but I think it seems a wise concern. And going back to Gardner and McGuffin, which is that, that botanical safety handbook, um, they put this herb in the safest category, safety class one, which I think you'd be hard pressed not to since it's a spice. Uh, and most of our spices have to be put in safety class one. Otherwise, why would we use them every day? There'd be lots of people and lots of problems if they weren't completely safe. So um, again, a fairly safe herb, as long as you're not mixing up with poison sumac, and you don't have any allergies or diabetes, I wouldn't, there, there aren't, I, I don't think there could be much concern about this herb in general. So in summary, wow, that was a, that was a good one. So we started a discussion today with the discussion, discussion, ooh, I hate when I do that. Why don't I reread these things sometimes? Uh, we started a discussion today with a very important historical Chinese book, Yi Jing, or Book of Changes. From there, we did our deep dive into this interesting culinary and medicinal herb with lots of potential health benefits, but not a lot of substantial research. But who wouldn't want to add some sumac deliciousness into their health routine? Overall, a very interesting herb with some potentially very useful effects. So let's all go out, buy a bottle of sumac, or buy some zatara. Um, uh, if you're not familiar with uh, I don't even know how to pronounce it. I've only read it. Zatara. It's like Z-A- hyphen T-A-R, I think. And that's a Middle Eastern common spice. It's a mixture of spices, and one of those is sumac. And so um, and they put it on everything, as my understanding. And so have a bottle of that around and, and put it on it, and uh, you can have some delicious health as, as part of your every meal. And in our next episode, surprisingly, we will be looking, why is it surprisingly? In our next episode, we will be looking at a Chinese herb mentioned in today. Oh, that's why it's surprisingly, because we mentioned this herb briefly in today's episode. No, we didn't actually. I meant to, but it's Wuweidza or Shishandra fruit, because the reason why I wanted to mention this herb is sumac is often, um, in, in one article, they compared it to Wuweidza, um, which is uh, a very interesting. It's very sour, just like sumac is, and it's a, it's a seed like sumac is to a certain extent. So very, um, the, uh, one source said sumac is very much like Uweza or Shishandra fruit. And I didn't even mention it today, and I meant to. So there you go. This is a relatively commonly used herb in Chinese medicine in the stabilizing bind category of herbs. So again, a stabilizing bind herb. 
It is also interesting as it is said to have all five tastes in one little package, hence its name, which is translated as five flavored seeds. And as usual, we will be exploring something a little different. I don't know what it is. I can't tell you yet. I haven't figured it out, but we're going to. Please join us and don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss out on even one exciting episode. Thank you very much uh, for, for joining me today. really appreciate it. If you like this podcast, please do us a favor. Give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app. We'd be so appreciative. Thank you. And remember, you can get CEUs, Continuing Education Units, and NCCOM PDAs, or National Certification Commission of Acupuncture and Oriental Medicine Professional Development Activities, at www.integrativemedicinecouncil.org. That's Integrative Medicine Council, C-O-U-N-C-I-L dot org. And you can always get in touch with me at Dr. Greg at spurbsherbs.com. That's S-P-E-R-B-S-H-E-R-B-S. Or at our website, www.spurbsherbs.com. Well, again, thank you very much. And here is my bibliography. Spurbs Herbs. The proceeding was presented by Dr. Greg Sperber. We would like to thank Janelle for all her support and everybody else who contributed to this program. Janelle. Janelle. Timothy Dobbins. Roger Campbell.